if you have a confession, to chapter 10, but I'm going to read first in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Joey spoke of this last week. Last week? Can't be right. Joey spoke of it at some time in his life. Um, And so, we have in John chapter 3, as we consider effectual call, that is, God in His grace sending a message, a call to sinners to bring them out of a state of darkness and death that we deserve because we've broken His covenant to call us back into a right relationship with Him through the Gospel. And what we have been saying is that the call of God is always effective or effectual for doing that. He never fails. And here we read in John chapter 3, in verses 1-8. through Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and you might have a footnote, or from above, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or from above. The wind or the Spirit... Same word, okay? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so we we see here Jesus giving a, a very clear text about God's active agency in calling people to Himself and that it cannot be any part human in its response. And the analogy that Jesus Christ gives is one of birth, right? You you must be born from above or born again. This is not something that in physical reality a human being can participate in, obviously. We don't choose where we're born, how we're born, who we're born to. And Nicodemus, trying to put these things together, says, how can this be? How, How can somebody be born again? And notice he has in his mind this idea that the human agency has to be involved in some way. I go back into my mother's womb. Do I do that? And be born again. And Jesus is telling him here that he, he doesn't have a right conception of the matter. In fact, he says, how can you be called the teacher in Israel and not know these things? Right? That these things are even clear in the Old Testament. That a man must be born Again, where do, we, where do we get language like that in the Old Testament? Not of born again necessarily, but language that is very similar. 
to being born again. What other pictures does God give? Well, we, yeah, we have Ezekiel 36 and 37, both of which, in Ezekiel 37, we have the wind blowing. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind or to the Spirit again, right? It says, blow on this valley of dry bones. And He does. And you remember the wind comes through the valley and puts flesh and sinew on the bones. It doesn't have breath. And God gives it breath. He raises up the army of Israel in the valley and they are alive when they were once dead. So we have images throughout the Scripture of being born again, of resurrection from the dead. What other imagery do we have? Maybe this is where Brother Caleb was going as well. Um, I'll just go to a passage I know very well. Deuteronomy chapter 30. In verse 6, we also have the picture of circumcising your heart. Okay? So in the Old Testament, God was pleased to give a sign to Abraham and all his descendants that they would be circumcised in their flesh. Okay? And that symbolized what we're talking about here. Regeneration. Okay? It symbolized what should take place in the heart. The cutting away of the... um, The unclean flesh. And we see this in Deuteronomy 36, where God says, through Moses, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And then notice what that means. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And again, what I'm trying to emphasize in all of these pictures, whether resurrection or new birth or circumcising the heart, all of those is that God does it to us and as our confession says, we are wholly passive therein. So, I'm going to read from paragraph 2. This is talking about the agency. How are we born again? How do we come to life? This effectual call in chapter 10, paragraph 2, is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with His eternal grace. The creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it and that no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. By no less power than raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, and so the question is being asked here is what's the ground of effectual call? Is it in the human or is it in God alone or some mixture of the two? Now, what was very helpful to me is A.A. Hodge, so uh, late, I think, 19th century, guy at Princeton Theological Seminary back when it was cool, compared three systems... 
The Pelagian system, the semi-Pelagian system, and I'll try to define these a little bit, and the Arminian system in, in how we view the Spirit's operation and what God must do. So Pelagian system, that is Pelagius, the heretic, way back in the days of Augustine. Okay? He would basically say, just bullet point order, that man has full ability in and of himself without any divine interaction upon him to do what's right and required of him and to turn to God and to live for God. There is no need of grace in the Pelagian system. This is a radical system. And the Holy Spirit, even when we're converted, so to speak, produces no heart change in us. Because we are able in and of ourselves, we have full ability and power to do it. Pelagius would argue that God gives the command to circumcise your hearts. He does. He gives the command, you must be born again, and God wouldn't give a command that we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to carry out. Okay? It's the Pelagian system. The semi-Pelagian system would say... They would deny what's called prevenient grace, that God must work in us and bring us to life first before we come to God, and that man must, in and of himself, he can't totally convert himself, but there must be a natural human desire without divine cooperation before we're saved, okay? We must work that up in ourselves. We must desire salvation prior to the Spirit's work to be saved, Now, they would say that grace, then, is cooperative with the Spirit, okay? The Spirit comes and witnesses to us in some way, but it's wholly up to the man to to cooperate with it and go to it of its own will and volition before becoming regenerate or saved. And then the Arminian position, which is different, does not deny prevenient grace, but changes, from our view changes it so that at Christ's death, grace was purchased so that the the original sin of mankind is wiped away and we are now, as a human race, overall restored to a position where because of God's grace, we can all respond equally. Okay? So those are basically the three systems that would be contrary to the Reformed doctrine. And... How it's contrary is in the Reformed way of thinking is that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, is unable to respond to God. Like with Paul says, there is nothing good that dwells in my flesh. There's nothing good. That every time I have revelation put in my face, whether it be from nature or from Scripture, my heart only responds negatively only responds negatively, and God, by His free grace and mercy, must make me alive again. Must make me alive again. And that's why our confession tells us that it is God's grace alone. First it says, notice, free grace. Free and special grace. Free grace as opposed to what? What would be opposed to free grace? works. Yeah. Wages earned. Okay? That, that I did well enough. I responded to the gospel in a pleasing way. I had the boldness to come front during an altar call, whatever it might be. It was something in me and not totally free grace. 
Or, free grace can also be opposed to something else on God's part. That God was somehow constrained to do it. Something forced God's hand where maybe he didn't really want to save us, but something in us or something in God's environment, if there was such a thing, constrained his hand to do it. And two texts, briefly, because we have a lot to go through today, that I'd like to just read. First, Tim, 2 Timothy 1.9 and Ephesians 2.8. I'm going to go quickly, so if you're able to keep up, please do. If you're not, just listen to these simple words of the Gospel. First Tim, or 2 Timothy 1.9. I'm going to read verse 8 as well. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, I want us to notice that there's something negative is being implied here. It's not only all of God's sovereign grace and mercy, but it's nothing foreseen in man. Okay? It says here that it was not because of our works, but because of God's own grace that He gave us before the ages began. Now, the Bible does talk about foresight of God, of course. He exists outside of time and eternity, and He does not live in successive stages if that makes sense. He doesn't experience time like we do. But God's foreseeing those whom would be saved is not divorced from God's choosing that we would be saved. Okay? And we, we have to recognize that. It's not one or the other. It's both and in the Scriptures because everything that takes place is, comes from the decree of Almighty God. And to say that he only foresees something and chooses a people who responded rightly not only gives man more ethical power than the Bible gives him as he's dead in his sins, that he really does want and desire to do such a thing, but it robs God of his, of his freedom that we see here. And secondly, we see God's freedom, our sinfulness, and His grace in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is very well known to you sitting here today. Ephesians chapter 2. And we, we talked about last week, and I think that you can't put too much emphasis on, when Paul describes the, the saints in the Ephesian church, and Paul himself, he describes before their conversion that they were dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, just like what? The rest of mankind. That when you survey the whole of mankind as considered naturally before regeneration, there's no difference. All are dead. But verse 8 really brings us clarity. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And to put a further underline on that, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God in that sentence? What is the referent? It is the gift of God. Yes. Grace through faith. Yes. 
Yes, faith is the gift of God and grace. It is not your own doing. Not a result of works in verse 9, so that no one may boast. Now, we're coming really close to the reason why this should affect us. This is not just high theology that exists in a tower somewhere. This exists so that we would give all praise and honor to God alone for what He has done, but also that we would never boast. We would never say, it's because I was smarter, because I was more holy, or add whatever you want to that. I was more self-disciplined. That's why I chose God. No one may boast. No one may boast on that final day. And we also see it's not only free grace, it's special grace. It's special grace. <laughs> Just a text that came to mind as I was studying this. John chapter 6 and verse 45. I'm just going to read this one text. Jesus says, as it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, but he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal Life. They will all be taught to God. God draws all His people to Him and again, effectually teaches them about Himself. Now as we consider that, God teaches all people everywhere about Himself, doesn't He? That's what we see in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, that the natural creation communicates the essence, the being of God to us so that we are without excuse, but the elect are taught by God in a special way. Taught by His Spirit about Him. Brought to saving union with Him. And so, man is not, seen because, not saved because of foreseen good works that he does. He is not saved by ability in our cooperation with the Spirit. Okay? But, he is, because of our natural inability, brought to new resurrection life so that we will respond positively to Him. And I, that's why I'd remind you that we went through last week, effectual call has language there of persuasion. Do you remember that? And especially, I'll, I'll read it once again, in the catechetical statements of the church, which I think are very clear, and worshipful, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. We resist the Holy Spirit all the time. And we do that in our safe state. But when it comes to salvation and God's people, He effectively persuades us to choose Him freely. Okay? This is the doctrine set before us. And so, the agency of effectual calling is God in His grace choosing us, saving us, not because of anything in us, but only because of His sovereign power and grace. Now, do we have any questions on that? Because paragraphs 3 and 4 are a little different. God saves us. 
Him alone. He does it. And He does it to the end. He not just converts us and lets us go. God to the end saves His people. Justification and salvation, sanctification worked out. Now, in paragraphs 3 and 4, we went through paragraph 3 in detail a couple weeks ago in our afternoon. But we have the issue being talked about here is not one of what agency saves us, because we've seen it's God, but the issues of how the Word and the Spirit work together in our salvation. And these are very difficult doctrines, and we'll do our best by God's grace this morning. Elect infants in paragraph 3, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. And I'm just going to read paragraph 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the Word. Okay, that is the, the regular human preaching of the Gospel, not with the effectual call of God. And have some common operations of the Spirit. Yet, not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can come, truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of religion that they do profess. Okay? So what's being talked about in these two paragraphs is how God does save by the Word and Spirit and discussing particular issues, theological issues that come to our mind as we hear this doctrine. God saves, and God saves alone through Word and Spirit. Well, the question is, what about infants that cannot mentally understand what we would consider the basic doctrines of what you need to know to be saved, okay, from our own conception and understanding? The mentally incompetent. That from our perspective and our our, uh, observing of them cannot intellectually understand the basic things of religion that we need to know to be saved. Now I frame it that way because we are only observers in this and it's very difficult to ascertain what a person really does know and what they really don't know. Uh, I'm sure in raising children, me and my wife have come to this application over and over again, they know a lot more than we think they know, right? Uh, They understand more than we think that they understand about this. And so we want to be careful. This is from our observation. But it is an important point to consider. What about infants? What about infants? And what I want to get to is the root of this discussion, I believe, is how the Word and the Spirit operate together. Okay. Now, again, there are several ways throughout history to consider this. Now, this is from Herman Bovink, and he divides it into how a, a legalist, a gnomist, an antinomian, somebody that's against the law, and the Reformed would think about it. Okay, With, with legalism... And the relationship between the Word and the Spirit, the Spirit becomes unneeded and unnecessary. Kind of like Pelagius' view of how we're regenerated. 
Okay? That is, the legalist believes that the word and the word alone is all that's really needed. And as long as the intellectual understanding comes into the mind and is assented to in some way, the person is saved. This is much of the name it and claim it salvation or the prayer prayer and you will be saved kind of idea. That the spirit is somewhat unneeded in this whole operation. The antinomian position on the other side often says that the word is unneeded. That all you need is a, a feeling of the Holy Spirit, a sense of utter dependency upon God where some of the, well, a lot, if not most of the Anabaptists back before, right after the Reformation, would say that we don't even need the Bible. That all we need is the Spirit to guide us through things and the, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But the Reformed view is different from these where they would say that the Word, the Bible, is insufficient in and of itself to change the human heart, but also the Holy Spirit can, but usually does not work without the Word. And that's what's being said here. When it quotes our confession, John chapter 3 and verse 8, that the Spirit moves how and where He wishes, He is not so bound to the Word, He has not chosen to bind Himself so closely to the Word that it is impossible for Him to regenerate a soul without the working of the Word. Okay? So an infant that dies in infancy, we can say that it is possible... We're not being dogmatic. Notice the careful language of the confession. Elect infants dying in infancy. That might be one infant. It might be all the infants that have died throughout the history of the world. Okay? The Spirit can. It is possible because He is free to regenerate a heart, save them, and bring them to new life, even without what we perceive to be the, the usual operation of the Word. And that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around because God has bound, the Spirit has bound Himself in His Word so closely that almost in every situation that we can observe, He does work through the preaching of the Gospel and the preaching of the Gospel alone to save souls. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask for questions on the infants and the mentally incompetent part only because I wanted to move ahead to the next section, but if there's questions, I want to stay here for a minute. Are there any questions? There, there are not any examples that are so clear that we can say that this heart was regenerated. It uses that clear of language, I should say. The, the language that we would point to that would give us some view of that is, is simply the language throughout the Old and New Testament of how Christ and how God through the prophets view children. Okay, And we would point specifically to David perhaps in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where the infant dies, probably maybe, I don't know how old, but very young, dies. And David weeps and mourns and then he says, I cannot go, uh, the child cannot come to me, but I can go to the child. Okay. Now, that's not a definitive statement. You can interpret that in a couple of different ways, but the Bible does seem to give indication that it is possible that he brings some 
children to heaven with him. Where some of the Reformed, I'm not saying I necessarily agree, but they were so strong on this that they would say that dying in infancy is a mark of divine election because of how the Bible overall talks about infants in a positive kind of way. That that God loves little children. Jesus loved the little children. Okay? And it's, it's hard. This is a difficult issue, but it's in our confession because especially in the 16th, 17th century and every century before that, deaths of children and birth were extremely high. I think close to 50% or something like that sometimes. So this is a pastoral question that has to be answered in some way. And the confession tries to wisely navigate by saying, we, we leave it open to the sovereign mercy of God that it can be that some, some infants are elect, that God regenerated them before the hearing of the word. Okay? It's a possibility. Okay. Last paragraph. Paragraph four is then going on to ask the questions, well, what about those who hear the external call? Right? Because there's many that hear the external call. Is it only by hearing the gospel with our physical ears can we say that those people are saved? And we would say, well, of course not. Right? Because this effectual call is not just hearing the gospel, coming under the sound of it, and we're saved. And really, in this view, it's very much like the Catholic view of the sacraments, that they, they, they simply work by working, right? Simply by going in the water, you become regenerate, or simply by partaking of the bread and the wine, you partake of Christ. In the same way, in the Roman Catholic system and other systems, merely hearing the word communicates grace without anything done in the person. But we're saying... That when God effectually calls a person, it regenerates them and actually brings spiritual life where they cling to Christ by faith. And so, the effectual calling here, the confession is teaching us, is not by the mere external call, but must be God supernaturally working. What text will we go to for that? We could go to a lot of texts for that, but what, what comes to mind? It, is, is that with um, calling out of darkness? Yes, yeah. Second Corinthians 4, that Paul relates when we come to faith, the same kind of working as when God spoke the world into existence. Okay, so Second Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 5, Uh, Verse 4, verse verse 3, sorry. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, implied there is that the gospel is being preached to a broader audience than those who are saved, right? They're they're blinded from seeing what's truly present in the preaching of the Word. And what is in the preaching of the Word is Jesus Christ and the beauty and glory of Him. Okay? They're they're kept from seeing it. And maybe even more simply, 
than that. In Matthew 22, 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Right? Many are called. The, the gospel calls goes to many things, but few are chosen. Few are chosen. Um, we see this in Paul in Romans chapter 10 as well. That his love for the Jewish people, even though they've, they've gone to be saved by the way of works rather, rather than by the way of faith, he asks the question, how are they to believe without hearing? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how is somebody to preach unless they're sent? Right? The, the Holy Spirit normally, except for in these extraordinary cases of, of infant death, works closely with His Word so that we can say, if you, don't hear, if you hear the Word of God, you must be regenerated by the, exter- by, the, um, by the effectual call of God. But also, what's dealt with here is that the effectual call must be by special revelation. That's what's being dealt with in the last part. So, many people have struggled with that, this throughout history. In particular, the Anabaptists after the Reformation, and some Baptists even in England would say that men could be saved by the light of nature. That is what God communicates through nature without ever hearing the gospel. If they responded well to that, then then God would see how well they responded to what they were given and save them. Okay, That they would see, oh, God is holy and immense and brilliant and wonderful for creating this world, and therefore I'll worship that God that they could be saved. And I'd ask you, is that true? I'd say an emphatic no. Emphatic no. That men are only saved by special revelation that nature cannot give to us, cannot communicate to us what we need to be saved. And that's Romans 10 again, isn't it? What we just went through. How how they be saved without hearing? How will they hear without a preacher? Right? We, we preach the gospel. We share the good news of Jesus Christ because without it, no man can be saved. And this is what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, right after he healed the man on Solomon's portico. He says, there's one name given under heaven by which men must be saved saved. There is an urgency in the proclamation of the gospel because men's lives depend upon it. You know, we've heard, I'm sure you've heard many times that Calvinists, they don't evangelize and they don't do missions because why, why would you need to if it's God's sovereignty? Well, I think that the opposite logic could be applied, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, that the Arminian, if we believe that you can be saved by responding well to the light of nature... Let them respond well to the light of nature. Because we know how men react when you share the gospel with them. How few are saved according to that. Well, you find many moralists in the world living in many countries. You can say, oh, it seems like they're responding well to the light of nature. This is not what the Bible tells us. That we must be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, a couple of texts. Uh, Maybe I'll be a little more brief than that. One text, and then we'll open up for some questions if you have it. John chapter 17. I ask, what's Jesus' view of this natural revelation? 
And uh, I'll read verses 1 through 3. This is Jesus, after his last sermon to his disciples, chapters 14 through 16, he gives his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And this is what he says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is simply to really know God. But it's not through nature alone, because he adds to that, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life. This is how God has chosen to convey it. And so, effectual call. God uses the ministry of the Word and comes alongside it, so to speak, to call sinners to Himself, to bring them to new life. But we are to consider that the Word is not so bound to the Spirit that the Spirit is not free to regenerate those whom He pleases, but normally operates in such ways where we can be confident if they did not hear the Word of God, they're not saved. And if they are saved, it's because there's been a twofold proclamation. One physic, physical and one spiritual by God. Do we have any questions? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful doctrine, Lord, to, to learn and to have in our minds that You call us. You choose us of Your own grace and mercy alone. And as Romans 11 says, as Paul worships You, he says You consigned all to disobedience that You might have mercy on all. Um, Lord, I thank You that it's not because of Him who wills or Him who runs, but You who show mercy. Uh, Because God, we know that if it was up to my willing and my running, I'd be dead and damned the second I started the race. But God, Your Son came to be dead and damned in my place that we might receive the truth of the Gospel to our hearts. God, thank You for the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that it would save today and it would grow Your people today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.